All right, what's going on? One week from Atlanta. It does look like I'll be headed down, and uh, I'm excited to get down there. Saruti, back at the home base. How are you? Chilling. Uh, I'm not going to Atlanta. Um, not but, going to Atlanta. You know, jealous. I've actually never been to Atlanta. Um, You're, there's a few cities you're going to want to hit before you hit Atlanta. I mean, I, I, yeah, you know, I don't know if you remember, Smallman and I made the drive from Charlotte oh, to right. Tallahassee, but we didn't really go near Atlanta, but I saw a lot of Georgia. Um, which a little different. Not yeah, not Atlanta. Yeah, uh, was a little bit different. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I don't, but I've, I, you know, so that was my experience in Georgia. Unfortunately, I have not seen Atlanta. That's like saying, well, we didn't make it to Miami, but we drove <laughs> yeah. the kind of the outer Orlando area. Um, I Buckhead is, you know, I think for SEC folks that are listening, you know, you graduate from an SEC school, you know, much like the Northeast. You know, I think everybody should try New York City. Uh, I understand, you know, New England people, I grew up with it. You hated New York City, and then you start hanging out there. I mean, some people just hate it, still hate it. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I'd want to live there, you know, 10 years and see what it was like, but I think it'd be great to live there for a year. I'd, I'd love to try it for a year. But, you know, you do New York City, you do Boston, and that's kind of it. And in the SEC, you hear a lot of the same things. Like, everybody just heads to Buckhead, and they work in Atlanta, and that's kind of the deal. And then, you know, you kind of figure it out afterwards. Yeah, then the uh, Midwest, it's Chicago, it's right? Chicago, everybody right. at Big Ten school, they end up going to Chicago. All the Madison kids go to Chicago, all the Illinois kids. Yeah. You know. But Chicago, I feel like I don't meet a lot of East Coast people that go to Chicago. A lot of East Coast people, there should be, maybe instead of New York City for a year, if you're from New York, you're from Mass, you're from Connecticut, they should send you to Chicago for a year right after college to learn how to be nice to people. <laughs> Honestly, I would be uncomfortable with that though. I don't like being I don't like people being too nice to me. Now, it's not it's not an aggressive what the hell's wrong with you nice. It's off-putting the first, you know, time you visit cuz you're like what the hell's going on here? And then you realize like, oh, wait a minute, this is awesome. Like people are approachable. I was laughing about this. I forget who I was talking about this with the other day. But we were talking about like being young and broke in New York City. But then you'd still be going out because you're just that's what you do. You're young and you're going to go out like Friday's Friday and Saturday's Saturday. I mean, remember those years of just going, well, what the hell else am I supposed to do? Like I'm 23, like it's Friday, and then tomorrow I'm going to do the same exact thing. And you're finding you know a way to put together enough money to to make the weekend happen. But you're still going to these spots where you've got no shot, like none, none whatsoever. And some of these guys would then come visit. Like we'd all get together and we'd go to Denver. And I didn't talk with you about this before, really, because I feel like I just talked about this with somebody, so I don't want to repeat myself. That's your job is to make sure I don't I don't, I don't think so so far, but keep going. No, right. So these guys would come to Denver, and they would just be so smooth, and girls would like them, and it was like they went away to camp. Like, how did you, how did you adjust your game in such a fascinating way? And they're like, dude, I get turned down for just month-long stretches in New York City. I'm, I'm treated like a homeless oh, person, yeah. man. Think, okay. Yeah. yeah. And they go, you know, aren't, you know, iron sharpens iron the way man sharpens man. So, you know, now I come to Denver or I come back to like a school reunion or, you know, give me a break. Like I'm in Manhattan trying to hang with Wall Street guys and artists and everything. Like I got no shot. So it's only just, you know, I've got to be sharper. So all those guys got a lot sharper. I think the great thing about Chicago is that you don't need that edge, uh, as much. Not saying you can be a total clown, but, um, it's, uh, it's a, 
it's a great city. It really is a great city. And it was a wake up call as a Northeast guy to go there. So anyway, uh, yeah, headed down to Atlanta. So here's what we want to do. Seth Wickersham, he's going to come on and talk about his piece, his number one piece up on ESPN.com right now about the Cleveland Browns under their ownership of Jimmy Haslam and all the different front office and coaching hires that they've gone through and a lot of firing as well and kind of where we're at now. Wickersham's just really good on these deep dive things. I got to talk at the end of the podcast about the Stephen A. Smith, Derek Carr fight. Yeah. Uh, I can't, I could probably do an hour straight on it. So we'll transition to that. And we have to do the magic minute. Will I remember to ask Saruti to do the magic minute? Bovada has sent a number on that as well as, uh, a, unlikely that I remember Plus to 1, do 000, it. 1,000, I think, yeah. opened it. Yeah, right, right. That's I do have, good. it is an exclusive magic minute too. So, well, I have one other thing I want to get to, but there's really just two things. One of them is a magic thing. Okay. So I'm just going to do a few minutes here on Harden because Harden has become, Oh, I uh, looked this up, the uh, Bete Noir, as I've been reading some of these uh, old school books here. Uh, you can go ahead and look that one up because that way you'll never forget what the word is. And I may have used it wrong or in too harsh a way, but it's pretty much the same same understanding here. I watch Harden all the time. Why? Because they're on all the time. I swear to God that Rockets are always on. And what is happening here is insane. 61, last night in New York City, <laughs> and I'm watching how the game's going. Houston almost giving the thing away, and yes, I got mad about the free throws that put Harden up, and then the Knicks hit a bucket, and then Gordon hits the three, and then the whole thing is over. So let's just bring up what James Harden is doing right now. For the season, he's at 36 a game, 8 assists, and 7 boards. His PR is at 31. He's hitting 40, let me see here, um, he's at 44% from the floor, 37% from three on 13 plus attempts per game. He's at really the second highest three-point make percentage of his career. He hit 39% on five attempts in his last and third year in the league, so that was his last year with Oklahoma City. He's now at 13 attempts, and his his numbers have gone up at 37, uh, yeah, 37, 36%. That's tying him for his second-best season mark on 13 attempts. So let's pull up January real quick. He's now scoring 45 a game, nine boards, eight assists. He's taking... 17 threes a game. That number's dipped a little bit because he was at 40% last month, but he's still at 35%. He's taken 14-plus free throws, hit 90% of those, and the big staggering number here is 30 shots a game. So as I watch it, you're a total jerk if you're not appreciating some of this, and yet sometimes I feel like a total jerk because as I've stated so many times, and I can't believe nobody else really picks up on this when we're like, how is Westbrook doing this? How is this guy doing this? We have seen offenses over the course of the last seasons where it all is on one guy, but I don't know that it's ever been on one guy the way that it's been on Harden. The usage rate stuff is is up there with peak. It's beyond peak Kobe from what I looked up. I think it's right there with that insane Westbrook first-year post-Durant. But at 30 shots per game in January, we're entering some really lofty company. So I started looking up the old Wilt Chamberlain numbers, okay? Wilt, from 1959 to 1965, averaged between 30 and 35 field goal attempts per game, except for the one year in 61-62 where he actually took 40 shots a game. 40 shots a game, and in that same season, took 17 free throw attempts per game. So right now, we have Harden, other than that one kind of out-there year, right there with peak Wilt Chamberlain at the beginning of his career with the number of shot attempts. Now, when you go back to those years, 
starting in 1960, mid-65, if you allow me a little leniency as I was looking at all this stuff on basketball reference, you have to understand how many shots were attempted per game back then. You know, now, God, I mean, that sounds crazy saying it out loud, but 70 years ago, um, 65, 70 years ago. Because when you start looking up some of the numbers and the rebounding numbers for Bill Russell, you're like, how is this guy just pulling down 30 and like 40 rebounds in a playoff game? Well, the game, if you go back and watch any of this stuff, it was just dribble it up and immediately shoot. Like, the guys put up a ton of shots. So during that five, six-year season stretch, and again, a little leniency here, because they're all kind of clustered together there in the 60s, but you had an average of 102, around 100 field goal attempts per game, and then in the all-time number one season that we have in NBA history that's tracked this stuff, 109 shots attempted per game in 1960 and 1961. That's number one all time. So that is a big reason why we have some of these absurd numbers from guys back then and the fact that Wilt was as dominant as anybody's ever been probably in his sport at that time. Just a physical freak beyond. He was he was like back to the future type of stuff where it's like, hey, this guy's going to come back now and play in the 1960s when maybe he should have been like more adapted to the 1980s because he was also an amazing athlete. This year right now, if you look at shot attempts, so that's 109 is the peak. In 6061, we are now at like the highest of recent memory in shot attempts per game at 89 shots per game. That's number 32 all time and still about 20 shy of where we were in those, in that one peak year and, you know, 12, 13 of those, those five year stretch. Okay. And then the rest of the current years are kind of like in the forties in their all time ranking. So we are now at a new faster pace than we've seen in recent memory, but still not touching upon those years that were peak will. But the fact that Harden, in this day and age, is taking 30 shots per game, and he's getting the line as much as he is, but he's still making the shots. And let's face it, this is by necessity. This is not just going, hey, I want a triple-double every night, which I think Westbrook kind of did, but then also did in a way that was necessary because that roster wasn't that great afterwards, okay? And I'm not, I'm not going to get back in all my Westbrook debates, but they're winning games. Like, this has turned their season around where you're going, are the Rockets really going to be outside of the top eight? I never thought that was going to be the case. I thought they would have an emotional hangover. I didn't know that they would match what they were doing last year. But first you lose Paul, you've lost Eric Gordon at times, and then you lose Capella. So he's actually doing what they need to do, and they've turned this around where they're flirting with a four seed now. So in the nights where I watch it, and yes – the step back threes with three steps where it's accepted drives me nuts. And the off arm stuff that he's doing now where he's flicking people away and then people put it up that man, he's got him on skates, which I've said probably too many times. That drives me nuts. And if you're a trailing defender, he actually flicks back at you and gets contact and then gets that call. Like that stuff is insane to me, but I can't let that outweigh the fact that the dude has put up in the past few weeks, 44, 38, 32, 42, 43, 38, 57, 58, 48, 37, 61. Yes, it is a ton of shots. But it's still really efficient, and it's really their only course. Do I think it's going to work in the playoffs? No. They still need all of their guys to come back and be healthy. But I have to force myself. I even made him my half-season MVP because I don't think he really can do anything else. This is both astonishing, part of a product of what's happening in basketball as the pace is picked up even more, and the three-point shot attempts that are just off the charts. And if you look at offensive efficiency, think of Phoenix prime years, 05 to 08. They were 96, 97, 97 points per 100 possessions. That wouldn't even chart in the top 30 of today's NBA season, okay? Nobody has anything lower than those top Phoenix offensive efficiency things. Phoenix, or excuse me, Golden State's number one this year at 114 points per 100 possessions. They've been number one for 
straight years. They were number two five years ago, but Phoenix isn't even close. So we are getting more efficient. We are taking more threes. We are picking up the pace. This is the fastest pace season we have of recent basketball memory that's even close to anything that's happening up at the top. So it is a combination of all of those things that's how it's happening and the fact the guy can just hit shots. And he has worked it. He has worked a system that, yes, drives me crazy, but he has made it work. And they're actually, it's not like they're going 6-10 and 10 during this stretch. They're winning games. Is that fair, Saruti? Yeah, I mean, I'm... Oh, I'm I, hesitant. No, I, I, it's obviously impressive. I just don't know, like, what it really means. Because I still don't think I'm putting up... I'm like, like we were trying to do this thing today. Like, all right, how many guys are you still taking over Harden? And I still think there's a, a bunch of guys that I would take over him right now. Um, and I also wonder, like, how many guys in this specific situation, if if say, hey, this is the this is the Rockets roster, we're going to put you in James Harden's spot, would also put up these numbers. Um, and I sort of think there's a, there's a not a decent amount, but there's a few. He's just in a great circumstance. And at the end of the day, the the reason I think people don't appreciate this as much as maybe the numbers would suggest they should is just because of the the playoff failures like i don't think we're ever going to get excited about james harden until we see like maybe a finals appearance or him do something amazing to offset all the stuff that we've seen that was negative and you know in, in in previous playoff years yeah he would still be at this point like a tbd as great as paul george has been he's been awesome i'm gonna need to see it in a big playoff game because i still can't believe that team there's no way as weird as it was, and they're a lot better now. I'm actually, I think I feel like I'm more pro Oklahoma City than the public is, but I think that's a carryover of their playoff failures. But they have that thing. I'm, I'm more confident in them than maybe even a healthy Houston at this point. Like, you don't think I think Steph, I am too, yeah. Right. Like, you don't think Steph, if he took 17 threes a game and 30 shots overall and got to the free, like, he would, he would do what Harden's doing. I really, I really believe that, but I don't think anybody else has ever been officiated this way. And see, but I don't want to, I don't want to start going down that road. I don't want to be a hater. And I'm admitting, I'm giving you it's well, full transparency. Sometimes I feel like an absolute hater with him. And I feel like I've kind of done this topic too many times, but I want to do like a deeper dive historically where we're at because the Wilt stuff, like when I see a TV show say, is Harden the greatest offensive player ever? That's when I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We all need to back up. And I agree with you. Like there's probably still five guys I would take. Actually, it's not probably. I would take five different guys to start my franchise tomorrow, but this is also insane. So I should just sit and be entertained by the sixty-one mm-hmm. instead of trying to come up with all these. Like I don't want it. And I feel like if I was doing a daily debate talk show, you know, if I were doing a TV show, like I'd be known as the anti-Harden guy because it's you know five for twenty, one for. I mean, he went one for seventeen from three against your Magic. Yeah. Mm. That was a tough <laughs> loss for them. But, so, uh, I, but I'll say know, this: like I, legs. You know, Legs is kind of also a hater. He was on with us today on Will's show, and he was like, this isn't even like real basketball that he's playing. Like, he was offended by it almost. And he's like, there's no way this works in the playoffs. He's like, there's no way this is a sustainable thing to do. He's just doing it, and it looks great, and it's awesome. But he's like, this is not how basketball should be played. He was like, I was watching the Sixers game where they got blown out. And he's like, nobody moves. Everyone just waits for him to do something. No, I mean, that's kind of what they did, too, in the playoffs. And well, I mean, that's who they are. Even when Paul is there, it's isolation. And it, I'd love to yeah, know. Yeah, my turn, I, your turn type thing. i got to figure out, because there were these different advanced stats that were really good about how many seconds a player had the ball. I can't imagine anyone's ever had the ball in their possession for as many seconds as a game. A game as, as Like, forget usage. I'd love to know, actually t- physically touching the basketball, how many minutes per game is that? Because I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. So I can understand where Legs is coming from. 
but but I so I guess I'm I guess I'm kind of what I I am on a lot of things where I go, you know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and start posting this is the greatest thing I've ever seen because it isn't, but it's absurd and it is out of necessity. So like, why am I going to sit there and start dumping on the guy? But right? I would say this, it like to, to do the reverse of that. If like LeBron was doing this. We would be like, oh, he's the goat. There'd be goat conversations happening all the time, and people but he wouldn't would... go one of seventeen from three. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I'm just saying, that, like, if if he had the exact same stat lines and was doing the same thing that Harden has done over the last 21 games, people would be losing their minds. Okay, but I don't think this is a 2019 be negative about everything deal. I don't. I think it's actually, I think he's an incredibly interesting conversation. And that's kind of why I keep going back to it. And then you go, like, when is this going to run out? And I go, I don't know that it is. I mean, until other guys come back and they're healthy. And I think the Chris Paul stuff, the last – I shouldn't even bring this up in the pod because I was looking it up a few days ago. But wasn't it by the end of the month he's supposed to be back? Um, you know, I'll look it up now because I just hate I hate when I do that. A message out there to the kids that want to get into this. Don't extend yourself beyond what you need to in the segment because right now I didn't even need to do that. And I did it. Okay, I just looked it up. The return is close. So when I said the end of the month, that's it sounded like that was something that reminded me of that. Okay, so how about the magic minute? Give me a little magic. Yeah, I got the, for the magic minute. I have two things. Um, one, I'll do. I'll start with the magic. Uh, well, that'd be good. Yeah. Well, the, the magic minute last sense. time was like more of like an NBA minute. I did like five different things. You so do whatever I, you want. I have two things. The magic. Uh, I'm really, I'm really starting to lose hope. Um, you know they beat the Celtics, they beat the Rockets, and then they go on they and they beat lose. The Celtics. I I know, and they they swept the Lakers. They I don't know how impressive that is. I guess it is somewhat impressive. They 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 beat the Celtics, they beat the Rockets, and you're like, all right, so they can they can they can beat good teams, and then they'll go ahead and lose. And I know the Nets aren't terrible, but they lose back to back games to the Nets, and they they lost to the Bulls this year, and they're they're just a mess. And I have no idea what they even are. You know, I. I there's all these people, and I, there's guys in magic circles going. They got to, they got to go and get Connolly. They got to go and get Connolly. They've needed a point guard since Jameer Nelson left, and I'm like, I get that, but like, then you know what your ceiling is. Yeah, your floor, your floor is is higher, but your ceiling is like, all right, you're you're probably just like a bottom of the East team, and that's cool. And then what happens after that? You're probably gonna have a contract that you regret in the future. I think they're an absolute disaster. I, I mean, I know they're only three games out of the eight seed right now, but I have unless something drastic happens, like I'd be open to trading Aaron Gordon. I, it's not that it's not even it's like the old depot thing. It's not that I don't like him as a player. I just don't know if he could reach his full potential in Orlando. And if there are trades for the future, I I know we, I I don't know if we talked about this on the pod or off the pod, but there are organizations that are just like, hey, we need to make the playoffs. We haven't made it in six years. Like, let's just do whatever we can to just like get the eight seed or get the seven seed. And they're kind of in that mode right now. But that would be a mistake because they're just there's no lo- I don't think there's any sort of long term plan here. Their backcourt is a mess. And who knows, you know, Bamba, I was texting with your boy, uh, and my boy, the only other Magic fan I really know, uh, Kevin Clark of the Ringer today, we were talking about it, and just like how skeptical we are about all these people, and you know, who knows about Bamba, and it's, I just don't think there's any real clear plan, and it goes back to the fact that they just have been so incredibly unlucky in the lottery, (laughs) and it's, it's a real bummer, uh, to be honest with you. Yeah, right, I mean, you, you know it better than anybody, but we've gone over it before, like every year, where it felt like, oh, if we had had two picks higher, would have nailed it. And like wherever the draft is, they seem to always land. Yep, just you know, right they, outside. They, you know, they they right. get Aaron Gordon the pick after Embiid. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Hazonia. So, well, I see, and I actually thought Hazonia was going to be awesome. He still might be. Who knows? I don't know. He's still young. But um, I don't know. So I'm I'm pretty. Things are bleak for me uh, with the Magic these days. They're not enjoyable to watch. Um, so 
Sorry. Sorry to any any magic fans that are listening to, to make you you know depressed even more. The other Brooklyn's, thing that, Brooklyn's incredible, by the way. They I, might, I don't They I won their my Colin Kaepernick award for most improved. <laughs> oh man, there we go. So I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> oh, what? I will no, say No player's of, ever improved more in the history of sports than Colin it's Kaepernick. True, it is true. I will not debate you on that one. Speaking of New York teams, though, I this is the, the only other thing I wanted to get to. Did you see Fizdale's quote about yeah. about Enos Cantor being a distraction? Oh no, no, no! I thought we were talking about the other one because he like Fizdale does not mess around. He, no, he's so real in his like this. I watched a good chunk of it last night, um, but no, give me the Cantor stuff because yeah, this so, is so reporters asked him basically because Cantor wants the he's like well, why am I not playing? You know, blah blah blah. I think I should Luke Cornette's ahead of him, so I can see. he's... Yeah. yeah, and he also resigned kind of knowing what the deal was. But that's a, he, neither here nor there. So a reporter asked him, you know, hey, like, what about this distraction, blah, blah, blah. So, and Fistel just responded with, what are we going to do, lose more games? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just that, right? I love that quote. I love that when you're just honest about stuff because they're clearly not going anywhere, and he knew the deal signing up. And I just love that quote so much from Fisdale. Okay, I'm just double-checking here, though. Uh, Canner's a free agent. But didn't he just sign? Uh, maybe not. No. He's no. a free agent after this season. All right, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah. So he then he got- can leave if he wants to. He got in the absolute. Well, the cap goes up. Don't worry about it. Um, he signed for four years, seventy million, and can't stay on the floor. I am uh, can't play. Yeah, I am. If there were a fan club for Ennis Canner, I would unsubscribe to the emails and I would not even open the mail. So there you go. Uh, I'm I'm not a fan of guys that talk as much junk as he does that are on the bench during key moments in a game. Uh, I read a ridiculous, ridiculous trade. Like I don't know. If people, um, I'm trying to figure this out now because I'm getting a little bit more of it, but I think that's just as the status grows. But like if people, when I come on and talk about something like, hey, there's a rumor here or something here, like I don't know, do, do you think people trust me? <laughs> or, or <laughs> um, I, I think the, the Slam Magazine Paul George thing will always piss me off because of what they did and how they framed it. But that did hurt me with a good chunk of NBA people. But I don't ever say any of this stuff unless I'll be like, hey, you know, this is what I'm hearing. It doesn't mean that I'm always going to be right. Um, I think I've always maintained for the longest time that people are confused by what your role is. <laughs> like, I think they just don't know how to like people like to be put like like Woj is an NBA insider. Schefter's an NFL insider. Like, you know, we put these people into these boxes and you don't really have a box, I guess, when it comes to that. Yeah, right. So when I would get like the Romo thing right and I thought it was like, hey, this is great. I'm a month ahead of everybody on the Romo thing and I'm telling you what's going to happen on the air. And then instead of like, hey, great job on that. It's, hey, we need you to make a statement to retract that. I'm like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or when I had them, when we had our own guys, like I was all over the Mellow thing to the Cavs. Like, oh, they're going to trade him for Kevin Love. Like people got used by Mellow's people on that one. And I knew what was going on. So I was like, well, that's not true. I had a day off. So I just said, hey, sources are telling me, like, there's no way they're doing love for Melo and they would only do Melo in a buyout situation to have him come off the bench. That was when LeBron was still with the Cavs. Um, and I got a, I got a call from the principal's office on that one too. I always kind of like when somebody will say like, hey, the, the, the writers are working really hard on this. Like, well, what do you think I'm doing? Like, yeah, you're you think I'm not on the like phone? Create chaos. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I thought I was trying to help out. Like, I thought this would be applauded. In a sense, um, we had a radio guy that said Bo Pelini was going to take over Florida State, and nobody cared. <laughs> like, I was like, "What?" So I, I don't know. I mean, that's always like I definitely, you know, I the LeBron stuff of of having an open mind about Cleveland uh, hurts me. But you know, that's one of those deals where I I know I have information that other people didn't have. 
And then that one started completely falling apart as it was like, yeah, nobody's coming to Cleveland. Nobody's coming to Cleveland. Like, we're not getting – the eighth pick isn't going to do anything here. Like, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone. Um, but when I say – like, so when I read a piece the other day that said, um, you know, Canner, you know, is a trade ship, and then <laughs> the source actually told the writer – it was like Canner was a big part of those playoff runs in Oklahoma City. I'm like, oh my god! Yeah, no, nah. that's so bad. Like, why would you say that? Why would you say it? And then why wouldn't you, as the reporter, be like, what? Like, that's where you have to have your own awareness of like who a guy is or isn't. And like, all right, so my source clearly doesn't pay attention. So, but you know, it's just great, man. I know how exciting it is when you get a source on something and they say, hey, go ahead and do this, and then you want to do it. Like, I've got stuff on Anthony Davis that I. I can't use yet. Um, I know that 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 Demarcus Cousins piece, and it's not um, it's not Sham's fault for reporting that Cousins said that you know he and Davis are tight and it's all going to work out. And but like some of the stuff Cousins like Sham's not reporting it incorrectly, but some of the stuff Cousins is saying from what I've heard is just not really close. But you know, look, a lot of this stuff too comes down to it doesn't even matter if you're right or wrong. It's like am I saying something you like or don't like? And if I'm saying something you don't like, then you're just going to say I'm stupid and I don't know what I'm doing, and then you're going to throw the Paul George thing back in my face. So there you go. All right, let's do a live read. We're going to talk to Seth Wickersham, and then we're going to talk about Fight Club. All right? Trust me on this one. The Black Tux guys hooked me up. Brother had a wedding. little last minute, but there's no scheduling love. So uh, I can't take, take look full endorsement on these guys, not just because they're paying for the podcast, but because they took care of it last minute. They can do the same for you, even if you don't have a great podcast. When you're going to be doing it big and going out to weddings and special events, you want to look fresh, but it has to be convenient. That's where the theblacktux.com comes in. The Black Tux has awesome suits and tuxedos in all kinds of styles, and you rent them online. The Black Tux offers the kinds of suits and tuxedo styles that would normally be wildly expensive to buy, and you might only wear it once, but with the Black Tux, you can do you and blow it out for your big one-time event. So try out a new look, do something different, and take your style to the next level. With the Black Tux, free home try-on, you can see the fit and feel the quality of your suit months before your event. After ordering, your suit's going to show up 14 days before your event. So there you go, guys. Get on this. If anything is less than perfect, the Black Tux will send you a replacement right away. And remember how simple returns are. Wear it. Turn heads. Then send back three days after your event. Shipping is free both ways. Stand out at your event for the right reasons with the Black Tux. A lot of times these guys will be like, hey, we need to send Rasilla something. I don't think I'm going to wear a tux in Atlanta next week. I doubt it. Um, I don't even know if I would if it were a tux deal. So they wanted to send me one to try and I'm like, hey, can you just wait until I have like an Emmy party to go to? So I can just tell you because I've dealt with them and they were great that you should try it if you need something like this. So here's a better deal. To get $20 off your purchase, visit theblacktux.com and enter code Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's theblacktux.com, theblacktux.com. Code Ryan for $20 off your purchase. The Black Tux, premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered. All right, let's talk some football. He's really one of my favorite football writers, and it's not just the information. It's the fact that he can do these long-form pieces. He's Seth Wickersham, been on the radio show a bunch, senior ESPN, the magazine writer. And his story is the number one story up on ESPN.com about Jimmy Haslam, the owner of the Browns, and all of their drama and where we're at right now. So I took copious notes here, Seth. I'm ready to go. So in this piece, you did two dozen interviews with Brown sources, league sources. Haslam's been an interesting guy, his own backstory. Uh, of the pilot flying J company, which we can get to a little bit there, but I don't, I don't think he's necessarily complicated. But in the countless interviews you did here, like, what do people say about Haslam, the owner? Well, I think they think he's well intentioned, but you know, because 
the pilot flying J business was under investigation and he that world that he had created essentially eroded. He needed to find a new identity and that became the Browns. The Browns were never supposed to be part of that. In fact, like he and his family were never going to move to to Cleveland. They were going to stay in Knoxville. And so they moved to Cleveland. They become more entrenched in the Browns and they're losing. And I think that what happens is that he sets up these structures where he arranges marriages and then he ends up serving as a tiebreaker. And it's just incredibly toxic and it creates a ton of mistrust and backstabbing and everybody is politicking to be the last person to talk to him before a big decision. And so when you're looking at like why the Cleveland Browns blow things up every, you know, 18 months to six to two years, it begins with that. They're almost destined to be blown up from the beginning because he automatically sets things up to be these sort of power struggles. Yeah, that thing about being the last person, like people in a race to be the last person in the room to talk to him, and that he kind of confides in everyone and gets everyone to confide in him, and then they realize, like, wait a minute, he's talking to everybody. I mean, not to compare him to Whitey Bulger, but I always think that like that was the funny thing about Whitey, well, I shouldn't call it funny, but you understand the point, that it's like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. this guy's an informant, too? <laughs> like, wait, wait a minute. And so, right. um, again, I don't want to make that the headline comparison here, because they're trying to rob a football owner and uh, a mob boss, so that's not the same thing, but I think there was there was one thing where I can't figure out if he's malicious in this act or if he's just an owner that's like, hey, I cut the checks. I want to know what everybody thinks of everybody. Yeah, I think that's a, that's really tough to figure out. And, you know, I think there's probably a little bit of both. And, you know, look, you're an owner. You can do whatever you want. And his accessibility in some ways is really a positive trait, you know. Not very many owners will talk to people at every corner of the building and, you know, give them his give them time. But, you know, what fascinated me about the Browns, is that the last half of the season, Baker Mayfield just became a force in waiting. I mean, that dude was a different kind of guy. He was completely immune to the toxic history of the Browns. He has a chance to just be an icon in that city. And the only things that can ruin him are an injury or the Browns' history. And so I wanted to look back and try to get a sense of what exactly it means to work for Jimmy Haslam and how decisions are made and try to think about that and how it might play out over the next couple of years when you have this star quarterback that the team has really been blessed with for the first time since the 80s. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what was... I can't say Hugh Jackson being fired was was predictable, um, even though, I guess as I say that, it's like, are you kidding me? The guy won like one game. And then they're competitive this year, right? So it's like if finally it feels like the first time they're competitive. I don't think it's fair to go, oh, Hugh Jackson, he, you know, he went with Tyrod Taylor, even though I've never been a huge Tyrod guy, because that's just the way the business is done in this league. Whether it's Mitch having to wait a little bit, whether it's Sean Watson having to wait behind Tom Savage, I've been over this, that, you know, Baker feeling like, oh, this guy didn't believe me. He didn't start me early on. It's like, well, I, maybe it's the dumb way to do it, but it's the way business is done in the NFL. But how, how pissed off was Hugh when he was told that he was being fired because the team quitted on him? So I was told he was very pissed off because you have to look at Hugh. Hugh's saying, like, from Hugh's point of view, he's saying this rebuilding effort under Sashi Brown was way worse than I thought it was going to be. And I feel like that my entire reputation has been damaged. We've let go of all these good players. And, you know, 
again, what everybody says with Haslam is that, like, you know, he'll make you feel like you're the guy who's going to be there through thick and thin. He's committed to you. So Hard Knocks happens. Hard Knocks is great television. I'm not sure it was great for the building. But, you know, some of the tensions on the offensive side of the ball were very clear. And the season played out. It got worse. And so, you know, Hugh thought that he had a vote of confidence but then Jimmy and John Dorsey come into his office after they lose to the Steelers, and they say we're going to go in a different direction. And he was upset, and I was told, and he says, why? And John Dorsey said, well, the team has quit on you. And Hugh took great offense to that because the team had been in overtime of four of their eight games so far in the season. So they easily could have had a winning record. And he told both of them to get the F out of his office. <laughs> so, all right, so... Hugh, who, like many people, GMs, I'm sure you're well aware of this and talking to all the guys you've talked to over the years and coaches are great at self-preservation. I always kind of laugh, though, when I hear Hugh complain about all the great players they got rid of. Who are, I mean, Joe Hayden is pretty good, but he's, he's not, he's not like Pete Joe Hayden. Who are all these great Browns that they got rid of is my question, because there aren't any. Yeah, well, I think that like there was another part of that, and you know we can get into the Sasha Brown era right now if you want to. But I think that like their point was, look, the worst thing you can be in the NFL is like seven and nine because you're not going to have a good draft pick, and you can easily go back to being a two and fourteen team more easily probably than you'll go to being a twelve and fourteen. And so they're basically saying, look, we are going to commit to young players. We're going to get rid of a lot of our marginal guys who are higher paid, regardless of whether, you know, they're, they're leaders on the team or whatever, like Joe Hayden. And, you know, it's going to be a rough couple of years. And so they had planned on losing for, for two years of a four-year plan. The problem was they lost way worse than they even expected to. And that's where the knives came out because Hughes, the coaches are saying, you've got to be kidding me. We're listening to Sashi Brown. And, you know, we, we have no players. We can't even compete in the NFL. And the other side of the building, the GM side, in, in his department, they're saying, hey, we easily could have had five to six wins if you guys had managed your timeouts better. And so <laughs> that's where it really, really, really got ugly. Yeah, I mean, we can go in a bunch of different directions. But I think just to follow up on the Sashi Brown thing is that, you know, at that point, Haslam had gone with Joe Banner, brought in Mike Lombardi, um, how come that didn't work out? Like, what happened there? You know, he just thought, he, I think he was just underwhelmed by them, for better or for worse. And I think, you know, they started to fight during the coaching search. And, you know, I think that Joe Banner had, he, he, he was very, very good. You know, that, that team had nothing. I mean, he had to, like, drop their floor plan. And I think that he was very good at getting them off the ground. But I think that Jimmy felt like that he could not attract top talent. And obviously they fired their head coach after one season. And, you know, the search was a mess. They didn't get any of their top three candidates. Adam Gase, who's an offensive coordinator and a friend of Peyton Manning's, who's a friend of Jimmy Haslam's, doesn't even really want to interview for the job and does it over the phone. They wanted Harbaugh and, too, right? Yeah, they, they tried to trade for Harbaugh. I mean, that never really got off the ground. And so they ended up with like an underwhelming figure. And then, you know, Banner and Lombardi are fighting. And there was a moment where... Haslam calls Ray Farmer, who's the assistant GM, and he said he asked about a fight that Banner and Lombardi got into over a player. It's really a routine fight. And Ray Farmer, I was told, 
you know, said, yeah, it happens. You know, this stuff happens all the time. And then only in retrospect, he realized that Haslam was kind of fishing for, for information because a week or so later, Haslam asked Joe Banner to dinner. And then before dinner, he says, if they, he asked if they could meet at the office. They talk at the office about free agency for a half an hour. And then Haslam says, you know, you've built a really strong team here. So strong, in fact, that I'm going to let you go. And Banner was completely floored. And then Haslam left and went out and met the new executive team who were waiting for him at dinner and knew that Banner was not going to be making it. All right, so Banner's sitting around hungry. He wants to go to dinner, and it's like, oh, by the way, the reason why we're not going to dinner is because I'm going to fire you and then meet with all your replacements. All right, so um, yeah. that was interesting. Who was the guy, by the way, Banner and Lombardi were fighting over? Do you remember? I, I, that I don't know. That okay. I don't know. Yeah, because I, I imagine some of this stuff. So, like, Mike Pettin's in there in the draft in 2014. Mm-hmm. They've got pick four. They trade back for nine. And then they go up to pick eight. And then they take Justin Gilbert, the defensive back, um, who completely flamed out. And then in your notes, in your article, you say that actually Ray Farmer, who's now replaced Lombardi and, and Banner, right? Farmer, at this point, both Lombardi and Banner are out, right? They're not only out. And and Farmer was promoted without interviewing for the job. <laughs> okay, so Farmer wants Brandon Cooks, and then he apparently wanted Bridgewater. But what happened in the draft room in 2014? Well, Haslam loves the draft. And he, you know, there's a lot of owners who bring in people, their friends, you know, sponsors, whoever, to like, you know, check out the war room. It's a cool thing. But they usually move them out when the draft starts. But Haslam just kept them in there. And so that draft in particular, Farmer picks Ray Pettin's guy, Gilbert. Then Johnny Manziel is falling. He knew they were going to pick a quarterback, probably in the second round, but then Manziel's falling. Jimmy wants Manziel. Farmer kind of acquiesces, picks Manziel. Then Farmer, I'm told, is visibly upset in the room because he's like, you know, you get judged on your first-round picks as a GM, and I've just essentially outsourced my two of them. And the Houston Texans call, and they offer to trade up to an early second-round pick for Brian Hoyer, who was the Browns quarterback at the time, and Farmer just kills the trade, which is a no-brainer trade. I mean, everyone loves high second-round picks because you get a first-round player probably for second-round money. Farmer's like, i got to put my foot down, forget it. He puts his foot down, and everybody is like, this is the biggest freaking you know, mess because you've got management on different pages, picking players that are going to flame out, and the owner in the middle of it, and by the way, there's an entire studio audience watching this. Yeah, I have to admit, when I was reading that whole timeline, I wondered a little bit if it was kind of that self-preservation stuff that we've seen with Hugh, a farmer, where it's like, so wait a minute, so Justin Gilbert wasn't your guy, so it was Patton's guy, the head coach, and Manziel wasn't your guy, he was the owner's guy, but then you were so mad, the only reason you didn't do Hoyer for a high second rounder, which, as you said, is a complete no-brainer. I mean, that's that's honestly a little embarrassing to not do that deal, and Hoyer was upset that Manziel was taken. Um, like, why then does he put his foot... You know what I mean? It sounds kind of like excuse-making for three transactions that all didn't work out. Uh, it could be, but I think that, like, again, you know, it's not... The reporting on, on Gilbert and Manziel, I didn't add a whole lot to it. I mean, that is out there. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I think that, like, the analytics folks who were in the room were the ones who were really high on that trade. And he just couldn't stand the analytics guys. Like, you know, they put little green dots on a player card when they 
thought that you know that guy gets a green mark from the analytics group in the mosaic of player evaluation, and he would just dismiss it out of hand, <laughs> even in the later rounds, just because the analytics guy is, you know happened to like that guy. So, so he, he wouldn't I pick the green dot guys. That. He wouldn't. He just if you had a green dot, yeah. then then farmer. Would. So farmer. Yeah. Tell me then about the the farmer transition into Sashi Brown. As, as you said, it was kind of like, you know, Sashi's going, don't give me the job if you're going to bail. Like, this is a four-year ride. Yeah, so everyone can tell that things aren't working out well with farmer. And that fall of 2015, the front office, including Sashi Brown, just basically is like, we're going to take you on a tour to meet with, like, executives at other teams that are successful and try to open your eyes to different ways to run a team. So they meet with like Theo Epstein and Sam Presti, Paul DePodesta, who they end up hiring, and essentially convince them of this plan where it's going to be rough for a couple years, but if you tear the team down to its studs and try to build up using some analytics, not all, but some, um, you know, we might have a better chance for long-term success than just sort of like kicking the tires and doing these different things we've been doing. And it, it appealed to Haslam. He loved like the, the boldness of the idea. And um, so he promotes Sashi Brown after he fires Ray Farmer. And then they go to find a coach. And they have these fantastic meetings where they're talking about, you know, they, they're whiteboarding and they're debating and discussing and talking about all these different characteristics for what makes a successful coach the entire executive team settles on Sean McDermott and the only person who voted for Hugh Jackson was Jimmy Haslam and Jimmy Haslam won. And so he goes to Cincinnati, hires Hugh and whether he had intended to or not, he had just set up another power structure that it was another shotgun marriage and he was going to be the arbiter. And it led to a couple of really ugly years. Yeah. See, that's the thing is I always look at owners and I go, Hmm. You know, sometimes I'm thinking like, okay, so you know, everybody, you know, everybody wants to do the Steelers thing. It's like, well, the Steelers do the Steelers right. thing because they've had success. And I, like, mm-hmm. is it only because they, like, would the Steelers hire somebody? And if he was bad for three years, go, oh, no, we're patient. We're the Steelers, so we're going to keep him here another right. three. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to not give the Steelers credit because they deserve credit for it. But what was Haslam supposed to do? Keep guys around uh, when it wasn't working out? But as you described it in the piece, and again here with us in the pod. Like to go to Sashi Brown and say, I'm, I'm all in. I love it. And to be so impressed mm-hmm. trying to reinvent the way to do an NFL team, which I think, you know, part of the analytics thing, as much as I really love understanding sports in a new way, is that they can be so conditioned that everybody's doing it wrong that it's like they're almost dismissive of th- some of the traditional things that do actually work that it's, it's going to bother a lot of people doing it that way. Mm-hmm. And then to say, okay, you guys are in charge. You're in charge. Oh, by the way, I really like Hugh Jackson. And they're going, well, it goes against everything that we just spent all this time in preparing for grabbing a head coach. Then, you know, honestly, Haslam deserves all of this criticism. If you can't follow, if you're trying to find or follow two divergent paths all the time, then no wonder this team stinks. Well, yeah. And, but there are also people who will say, look, you know, were we weak leaders? Like, did we not do what we should have done and, you know, tell Jimmy, no, look, you need to get out of the room and follow what we're, what we had planned to do. Like, are we being weak leaders? And yeah, you can blame Haslam for picking these guys and setting up these structures that don't work. And yet I think there's also another side to it where like, you know, a lot of these guys weren't leading as strong as they should have been. 
So the hope is all on not just Baker, but Dorsey. And is Dorsey the right guy to figure yeah. this out for Browns fans? Well, that's the interesting thing. So, like, I don't know. And I think it's fascinating because it seems like that he, more than anybody since they got there, has managed to get his way. And he, he drafted Baker. Everybody was on board with Baker. But he drafted Baker, and that gave him a ton of political capital. And Freddie Kitchens, who obviously did a great job as offensive coordinator, didn't draw a lot of interest as a head coach from other teams, but that was Dorsey's guy, and he won out. And he not only won out by hiring his guy and drafting his quarterback, but he won out by getting a reporting structure that Kitchens reports to Dorsey, not to the owner. And so that, in theory, is going to eliminate the appeals court. And we'll see how it plays out. I mean, it's going to force Dorsey and Kitchens to figure stuff out on their own rather than go to Jimmy and complain about each other and backstab each other. And it'll be interesting because now they're in the same boat. And we've seen in the past that when the boat sinks, everyone starts throwing water. But those guys are in the same boat, and they own each other's success. How... Much of a, I would say, I would say how much of a fan, but really how much of a non-believer was, was Dorsey and the analytics guys? <laughs> I mean, Dorsey's a career scout. And, you know, I don't think that he believes he needs a pile of charts or statistics to scout football players. You know, what did he, what did he I, say about him? Not from that. Yeah, he called them effing nerds. But I think, like, you know, and then I, I also don't think that like, effing look, nerds. <laughs> yeah, he's, I think he's warmed up to a certain extent. You know, I, in terms of collaboration. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is John Dorsey is a scouts GM. He is a, you know, one of the things that Jimmy does is, you know, he starts with Joe Banner, kind of an untraditional hire to set up an untraditional type of system that he wanted to run. Then you've got, he goes to Ray Farmer, lifelong scout. Then he goes to Sashi Brown, way outside the box, different type of guy. And then he goes back to Dorsey. And so, the question will be is, again, you know, can he ride this out or are they going to ruin this incredibly precocious and talented quarterback that whether it was talent or whether it was the bloodshed from all these regimes or it was luck, they ended up with this guy. And he can be an icon in that city if they don't mess it up. Okay, are you ready for um, – oh, no, I want to do one more before we do five questions here. Just quick on, on Baker. Uh, we know that, you know, when you're a little guy and you're in a big man's world – you either cower or develop an edge. Um, and part of that, you know, I get I get the way he's wired the way he is, even if there are certain things that I disagree with. I'm like, you know, this is kind of – it's almost like a Westbrook thing where Westbrook mm-hmm. was down at his whole life. It's not like he was so small, but he didn't have the offers, scholarship. He didn't really kill it at UCLA right away, and he's mad against – he's just mad at everybody. He hates the world, and that's the way he plays basketball. And there are times where I don't like it, but I still have to appreciate it. And I think that the best way of – just looking at Baker's, yeah, there might be something every now and then you're not going to love, but all he's been told is that he can't do it, and then he goes number one and proved that it was the right pick. Because, you know, five years ago, Baker doesn't go number one. Um, and mm-hmm. Baker's, in a way, changing the way teams are looking at college quarterbacks. So I know that there were things in the piece and what we saw from Hard Knocks and his own comments afterwards about, you know, people trying to poison Baker and all these different things. But, like, well, how much of this is Baker and how much of this is Baker – fighting for a city and a fan base and a franchise that feels like they've had nothing. Yeah, I think it's both, you know, but I mean, Baker has not changed one bit. I mean, that dude has been the exact same guy 
his entire adult life. And so the fact that he took it to this stage is interesting. And I think that, like, you know, we're talking about, like, will Baker get ruined? Another side of this that I never really touched on in the story was, you know, owners often fall in love with their franchise quarterbacks, and that ends up undermining everything. Like, you remember it happened in Washington with RG3 and Dan Snyder, and that'll be another interesting thing to watch just to see is like, well, whether like Dorsey and kitchens end up being almost irrelevant in this because the owner ends up falling in love with the quarterback and the quarterback becomes the most powerful person on the team. Yeah. I just don't think, I just don't think, you know, I know other teams did like Baker in the top 10 area there. So it wasn't like they were the only team that was going to take him one, but to still do it in this draft class, you know, to know that you can, Hey, just take the big kid from USC, you know, Take the big kid from mm-hmm. UCLA, you know. Like we can, if we fail there, it'll make, you know it'll make sense. It's it's my classic Perzingis Carl Anthony Towns thing. Like ah, we really like Perzingis, yeah, but if we take the American kid, that's big, you know, whatever. We won't be idiots. And you know, I don't <laughs> think Dorsey should ever ever you know not be given credit no matter what happens here. All right, ready for five questions? So rapid fire sure. stuff about um, you know just anything here. All right, what's the toughest interview for you to ever uh, closed? What was the one that was actually the hardest? The one you never thought you would get that you got. Um, you mean if somebody on the record? <laughs> <laughs> Please tell us your best uh, off the record stories. I don't know. Yeah, right. Um, who was the toughest interview that was on the record? Uh, Belichick is always hard. You know, he's not like combative, but you want him to, you want to get him talk about something he wants to talk about. And that can be sometimes simple and sometimes it can be elusive. Yeah, because sometimes if you just go nerd football with him, he's like, great. Um Sometimes really, not. Yeah, right. He can sometimes, he can really surprise you and be oh, revealing. If you ask him a really smart and well thought out question about football, he'll go on and on. No, sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, totally. You know? Right. No, I mean, okay. Um, <laughs> tried, you know? Was there ever a moment where you didn't like Harbaugh when you wrote that amazing feature on him years ago? Uh, no, I always liked Harbaugh. I still do. Are you surprised it's not working at Michigan the way... And again, I don't think he's a total failure there, but it hasn't maybe... No, not at all. That was my entire story was foreshadowing it. You know, I think that he comes in, he provides a jolt of, you know, a jolt of electricity and energy, and then that eventually kind of fades. I mean, I was surprised they, their defense just completely got killed against Ohio State. I mean, that was embarrassing. That part was embarrassing. All right, who said no to you forever? Who's your, who's your white whale? Um, Goodell? Not. I think he only goes on Mike and Mike. Or there you go. Golik and Wingo now. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. This Pats team you've known well, um, and all my buddies in New England love you. Uh, mm-hmm. How does Belichick do this where he kind of learns his team and they evolve they evolve in a way not that they were ever losing games you know they lost a lot of bad games this year which was very unlike them but how does how unique is his evolution of his team throughout the year compared to everybody else you've ever covered it's amazing and there was an anecdote and i don't remember where i read it it wasn't a piece of my reporting but where tom brady was in awe of peyton manning's year that he broke the touchdown record and he threw like 55 touchdowns because only Brady and Belichick and like five other people in the NFL could notice that the that the offense for the Broncos had completely evolved that season and was completely different at the beginning at the end than it was from the beginning. And I mean, so and that was all Peyton doing that alone. And 
Belichick does that every year. It's just amazing. It's like to me, you watch the Patriots, and like I know from talking to you and from you know when I wrote the story about them a year ago, that was a serious problem that they were having, and. You know, subsequent reporting, Tom Brady, you know, wanting a divorce from Belichick and Jeff Darlington saying that it was not going to, you know, work out any a year longer if it was going as it was. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff that backed that up. But I was always a little bit skeptical that Brady or Belichick were going to be gone because, A, I don't know if Kraft would let them, but B, these guys know that at the end of the day, they, whether they get along well or not, they care more about winning than they do anything else. And... I mean, man, that those guys are hard to shut down for sixty minutes. I mean, no, that's, you know, that's, watching the watching the Chiefs game, and it's like D, they, the Chiefs made the play to win the game, and D Ford lines up offside, and right then you knew it was over because you can never ever give Tom Brady a second chance. Yeah, I think what's always been kind of unfair the criticism of you on that piece, and I'm certainly not one of the critics because I know you and I know the work you put in, and I know how many times it's ended up being like, hey, that's right. And then you were backed up a bunch of different times in it. But then it was like the Pats fans wanted you to be backed up. The only way your report would be backed up is if they went 6-10 and 10 and Brady was traded. And you're like, well, no. Like, you can report on the problems because it's incredibly interesting, this run of almost 20 years of these guys that are arguably the best to ever do it. And I think it can be interesting, and it also can be true that they find a way through the adversity like they have with every other challenge. So... Uh, yep. I think that's what was the best part of the piece. All right, we're going to transition Thanks. into fighting here a little bit. So the last question would be, who do you think at ESPN is the toughest non-athlete um, of any of the people that work there that are on the air? Because the Stephen A. Smith, Derek Carr thing, I, I have to get into here a little bit. Oh, no. Yeah. Do you still count? <laughs> See, I get too much credit there. I'll, get, I'll, I'll vote you, man. Uh, oh, no. Non-athlete? All right. Well, I appreciate the vote. That wasn't what I was going for. <laughs> Nola Jr. did, if he wrestled in high school, too. Oh, I don't, yeah. yeah. I think, well, <laughs> I mean, he is an athlete. I mean, college athlete. So, yeah. Uh, he's got a little too much size for me. All right. Hey, check out the piece, ESPN.com. Breaks down the Browns. Uh, just a great, if you're interested in this, you, you, it's even more in-depth. And uh, Wickersham's the best, man. So, thanks a lot. Thanks, man. Okay, that's a nice segue in. And, you know, I don't... I I don't know. You think I was fishing for Seth to answer me on that? Because I wasn't. No, I, I definitely don't think you were doing that. <laughs> yeah, ten years ago, definitely. Um, now I now I wasn't. So if you don't know the backstory here, Derek Carr went at first take. Uh, it was Stephen A. And Kellerman. And what athletes don't understand is that when you go at shows like that, you only make them stronger. Okay, there was nothing better for Skip Bayless's career than somebody calling him out by name. I mean, it's like everybody. Executives love that stuff. It's like, yes, resonating. We're getting through. And honestly, that's kind of the game anyway. Just do it. Even if I would rather not have anybody challenge me uh, to a fight publicly. But that's what Derek Carr did. <laughs> he said to Dana White, he was like, hey, can we get a fight where I can... What was the tweet? Do we have the exact tweet? Should I pull it up? I Probably just for accuracy, right? Let's let's pull it up. Yeah, and honestly, long. while you look while you look at this up, we had a pretty positive response from last week's like behind the biz kind of thing. Yeah, we did. We um, did. And, you know, I'm, st- I'm still increasingly amazed that, like, these teams and these athletes, like, continue to do this because they know the deal. Like, like the whole, like, Rob Parker thing. Like, well, who cares? Like, why, why are you worried about what he's saying? What and did Rob Parker do? He, he went on the herd, I think, today or something and was talking about how Brady is, like, the luckiest guy of all time or something. He's the loat. And it got picked up everywhere and was like, oh, my God. And you're like, this is the worst take. But yet, here it is. All over Twitter, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a real theory that I have on this, um, and it and it goes back like Jamie Horowitz when he was an executive at ESPN, he, you know, first take was his baby, and he was really good at TV, and I think those guys used to watch a lot of Fox News, and they would kind of pick up ideas from like, okay, this is how Fox News does this. And maybe it wasn't just Fox News. It might have just been broadcast cable news and all that kind of stuff. Like they would, they would be inspired. And there are a string of on-air guys that really kind of, I don't want to say like at the altar of, of Jamie Horowitz, but they're very, uh, influenced by him in their styles. And it's this almost defiant, I'm going to say stuff because, you know, you need to get picked up by the blogs if you're going to be an opinion guy. And I never did it enough, you know, because I just didn't say outlandish crap all the time. And so I would think like a Horowitz type would look at me and be like, eh, I don't really, you know, okay, cool. You watch a bunch of games. Sweet. Um, but, you know, he was a big Colin guy, and you can see some of that in Colin. Nick Wright, I think, is one of his guys, and you see that in Nick. Rob Parker was one of his guys at first take. Um, Skip was absolutely his guy, and I, I think he's done – like that's a really – a credit to him and very impressive that like a behind the scenes television executive could get so many people that have these prominent positions to all have them kind of do this like defiant unrelenting style of just no matter what this is what you believe and you never deviate from it and I used to see like they would talk about Beetle and be like, all right, Beetle is this and she is this and she's all these things. And I was like, oh my God, like you guys put all this time into like who these people are. And then, you know, Colin's this and Colin's that. And I'd be like, man. And I was really impressed by the whole thing. I was like, boy, we don't do this in radio. And yet at the same time, it was like, I remember him saying to me, he's like, I don't, like, what are you? And I was like, uh, I just, you know, kind of do a good job on the air and know my stuff. And he was like, eh. <laughs> so I, yeah, we'll find a spot for you. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And and I, I'll i never forget that conversation because I was like, oh, man. like and It was kind of an earlier sign, so now I'm kind of doing the down the road of the business thing. But I can see the people that I know he has been aligned with in sports where I go, oh, okay, yeah. Like that's, that's kind of like – it's almost like there's a Bill Walsh coaching tree. I think Jamie has had that kind of impact on people that talk in the industry. And so anyway, so Derek Carr – who actually is a huge Rosillo Cannell fan back in the day, um, goes at USC, at Dana White, how do I challenge a couple of these clowns on TV to fight? I think we should start a business together where pro athletes can challenge some of these people to an octagon fight until they give us an answer. Um, you don't know me, stop lying. So that's them talking about the thing. All right, so here's the deal. Oh, and he blocked both of them for talking trash about our team? I don't know, man. I mean, it's tough to be kind of pro Raiders at this point. But look, he's the franchise quarterback. He's going to stick it for his guys. So I get here he's coming from. I don't blame guys on first take. I didn't see the segment, so I don't want to, like, marry myself to that either. But, you know, if a couple guys are on TV knocking the Raiders right now, I mean, I don't think it's the most, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, I can't believe those guys did that, right? Um, it, it's not it's not exactly, like, an absurd idea for those guys to be knocking the Raiders. But here's what's absurd. Bovada made... Stephen A, a favorite over Derek Carr? What are you guys doing over there? Like, there's no way. And that's the thing. Like, I think we always kind of forget sometimes with pro athletes. Like, you can think a guy's smaller. You can think this. But, I mean, there's still pro athletes. And these guys are still in their 20s. They would mop almost all of us. And Stephen A, no offense, he's older. And I think he's a little soft now. So I don't, you know, I he's my guy. But I walk behind him. I, you think he's blocking punches from Derek Carr at this stage of his life. So for them to make him a favorite, I demand, well, I don't want to have anybody from Bovada, but I mean, 
We need to discuss this, and we'll discuss it further right after this. Dollar Shave Club has everything I need to look, feel, and smell my best. Got my first box out here in Manhattan Beach. What I love even more is the fact that I never have to go to a store. That's because, one, Dollar Shave Club delivers everything I need right to my door, and two, they keep me fully stocked on what I use so I don't run out. Here's how it works. Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to get ready, no matter what you're getting ready for. They have you covered head to toe for your hair, your skin, your face. You name it, they have it. And they have this new program where they automatically keep you stocked up on the products that you use. You determine what you want and when you want it. And it shows up right at your door from once a month to every six months. So it's sweet. This is what I do. I have all of the stuff that I need sent to me. And I have like two different travel bags. I have something at home and then something that I use to bring on the road all the time. They've got the new Dollar Shave Club toothpaste. So basically, to have it set up automatically, you can just... Figure out, like, all right, I want this every month. Or if you're afraid, if you're afraid, just do every every three or six months. How nice is it to never run out and never have to think of going to the store to buy any of this stuff? How many times have you traveled somewhere and you're like, damn it, I forgot this, and now I'm going to pay way too much because I didn't print out my coupon? So just have it ready to go from Dollar Shave Club. That's what I do. I sign up. I get the stuff sent every few months. I've got the toothpaste, which is incredibly fresh. I just I feel great walking around with it. All the other products, I've got it in the travel bag. I've got the home kit as well. So that way, I'm not going to hotels where I'm going, oh, man, I forgot this. I forgot that. Nothing's worse than the toothbrush from the hotel lobby. So get the toothpaste, get the setup, get all the other products. Tell me how great your hair products are. I'm jealous that I can't order that stuff and get it sent to me anymore, although it is a little bit cheaper. It's great. Plus, they're handsome some discount. The more you buy, the more you save. So it's even better. So here, right now, they've got a bunch of starter sets you can try for just $5, like their oral care kit. After that, the restock box ships regularly sized products at a regular price. So what are you waiting for? Get your starter set for just $5 right now at dollarshaveclub.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Ryan. So back to the fighting thing, because that's really all I wanted to talk about in this entire podcast. Um, am I in... Am I insane for being outraged? Like, I know some people may think that this is me taking... No, man, I'm about the facts. If Stephen A were a, just a, a chiseled, just dude you don't want to... I don't know if he has a switch or not, but there's no way I'm picking him against Derek Carr. And it's not like Derek Carr is small either. Like, Stephen A's not small, but for... I mean, I come on, right? Well, so I, I like both of these guys, so I don't want to, like, diss anybody, but, like, does Derek Carr have some sort of extensive fighting history? Like, you could be a good athlete and be a bad fighter. No doubt. No doubt. But fighting is not an old guy's thing. And I bet Stephen A, you know, he was probably scrappy. Yeah, I mean, he played college basketball, so I'm not... Yeah, he was, a, you know, was a, a, a decent athlete. How old yeah. is he? Is he... He's got to be 50 now, though, right? Old man strength? Looks. Like, yeah, I know. I mean, look, I've seen some old guys mop college kids outside. You know, they just pick, like, the wrong dudes. He's 51. <laughs> Come on, man. I mean, if you're drafting two, like... NFL positions as far as fighters, I would imagine quarterback is probably the only people that are like worse than that are kicker and punter. No, okay, but that's we're still talking about Derek Carr, who's who's not a small guy, and how I mean, how old is he? So look, I mean, Stephen A's probably six one, six two. Um, I mean, Carr six three, two twenty. He's twenty seven. I mean, unless Derek Carr is a it's just soft as can be. I mean, maybe Bovado knows this better than I. Maybe there's something. Maybe they called guys around at uh, at Fresno and said, you know, can you find? Be like, actually, you know what? Soft can't fight. I remember in '03. This is classic local radio. Wouldn't get away with this topic now nationally. Um, maybe it would. We just started like naming Red Sox you think you could beat up, and we started taking calls. And then it got a little dicey when a guy was like Byung Hun Kim, and then and the dude on the show was like, yeah, but what if he what if he knows karate? 
And we're like, oh, yeah, that's true. We don't know. And then we're like, does anybody know? And then it was like a ridiculous segment. I think the majority of the public would think, oh, that guy or that receiver. Like, I think Julian Edelman would probably mop me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Wait a minute. You don't have to say definitely. Well, I mean, uh, there's no disrespect to you. I just think, like, to me, he has kind of like he, the wannabe pretty boy look, but I bet he's tough. Like, I bet he's really tough. I mean, he played at Kent State. He's tough, okay? I mean, the beating that he takes over the course of a game and gets up and gets right in defense. Like, I'm not saying it means he's a great fighter or anything, but like Julian Edelman's not going to give up after getting popped a couple times clean in the face. Like, he's not. Now, I, I'm basically, my whole point is this, is that for anyone out there that thinks, like, there's a number of pro athletes, like, whatever percentage of you, you know, and I'm talking about, like, the guys on the smaller size or guys that don't look tough or maybe their personality's too soft and you're assuming some things that they don't have a switch or they don't have that anger button where they turn into total psychos, which is really the biggest key of whether or not a guy's going to win a fight or not. Like, are you just going to be that guy that never gives up because it's like, oh, that guy sucks to fight. Like, I don't want to deal with that. Um, the the number, the percentage that you could take on is so much lower than I think the public realizes, is my point on this. So this isn't even really a knock on Stephen A. It's just just math. Like the other guy's half his age and a little bit bigger. And my guess would be right now, like I don't I don't think Stephen A's a big work workout guy. I don't. That's my other thing. Like Stephen A made fun of me when I was getting in the celebrity game where he was like, Nothing about you says basketball player or whatever. And I was like, <laughs> I would kill you right now one on one because I know I still play. He would, I mean, I, he, he 100% did not believe that though. Like he think, I bet right now no, he, he thinks he could take you in, in hoops. I'll play him right now for money. Right now. Cause I know he's not working out. I can tell. I just can tell he's, he's not a busy man. Out. I mean, yeah, he's got a lot going on. Yeah. I mean, he's on every single yeah. <laughs> show. And, and I don't mean, again, you know, for all the people that don't like Stephen A, the dude puts in work. Like he doesn't say no to stuff. All right. And. You know, he's at the UFC thing this past weekend after hosting two shows. I mean, the national radio show and the first take every day. So um, you're not going to, like, I, I think he deserves more credit for being what he is as far as, you know, there's guys in this business that, like, complain about all these things. And it's like, yeah, but he doesn't even work. And, and Stephen A is the opposite of that, man. He, he puts in the hours. So uh, I, I just, when I saw this, I mean, I thought it was funny. I thought it was great. It's kind of like back to that whole thing of, like, how society would run itself if we were allowed one fight, right? But... I mean, there's a pretty good chance. Like, I always think every now and then, I'm like, I wonder. I'm like, no, that guy would would kill me. <laughs> no, like, remember the when I went to that Chris Long thing and I sat with. I, I, I don't know if I've told you this before. I think this I did Bradford bring it up thing? once. Yeah, it was with Bradford, yeah. Laronitis, and Long, and then they sent the pictures back from us from the charity event, and I was like, oh my god, I'm like all this work I've put in for decades sucks. But you know, nothing you can do when one kid is the offspring of just a badass wrestler. Well, Bradford, uh, sneaky jacked, right? Or sneaky, like, bigger huge. than you think he is? Yeah, he's huge. Yeah. He's absolutely huge. He just wears the biggest jerseys ever, so he looks like he's coming up from a youth league. Um, and Long's huge. I mean, Long's like 260, 6'4". Like, he's big. Like, I actually don't think I want to hang out with him in Atlanta. Because I'm like, uh, I don't know. I look like, I look like you're, you know, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. So, I think... I don't know that I'm done here because I get too much credit around ESPN for being. Um, but I also think oh, the you're business... the go-to like guy that nobody wants to mess with for sure. Yeah, Non-athlete that nobody wants to mess with. Yeah, and some of the athletes have even said that. But I go, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I'd do if I had to fight Darren Woodson tomorrow. Oh, I wouldn't fight Darren. No way. I mean, right. I definitely like, wouldn't. And the thing is, is like big, when you look but... at Woodson's shoulders and his hips and that, but he still has like a waist of a he player. He looks like he could play. Right. He looks <laughs> right like now. he can still play. You know, he's still working out like crazy. And he's got a little look in his eye where I think he's got a switch. So, you know, 
I would have never been worried to fight in Canal. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know who's like kind of intimidating, and he's a really nice guy. Is uh, Bobby Carpenter? Yeah, but Bobby's pretty big. He's too. huge, dude. And he like I just recently started following him on uh, Instagram. I like Bobby. Yeah, yeah. And he all uh, his Instagram is only workout videos. Like that's it. <laughs> it's it's you'd actually love it. But yeah, Bobby had was part of that run where it was like all the AJ Hawk and those guys. Oh, yeah. where it's just Clay Matthews. Like we're just these Viking type dudes <laughs> that are rolling in with this hair and this physique, and you just. You're like, oh man, I wish I were 250 and taller and had Viking hair. That was probably, I would say that's the most, other than big wave surfers, the most heterosexual crush, uh, or maybe least heterosexual crush, maybe a better way to phrase it would be the long hair, early 2000s Viking phase football players. Cause yeah. I looked like Brian Cushing a little bit. He never, he never rocked like, he didn't go full Viking. Like he went Jersey Shore. No, but he more. was definitely, you know, he was in that group. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, so it was AJ, <laughs> Paul Puzlozny was kind of in that. Puzlozny's a good looking dude. Yep. Yeah, like yeah, huge neck. And you can do all the curls you want if you're like six two and my frame. It's isn't. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's just not. It's not going to. You're not going to get there. All right. So all those guys would kick my ass, which is without saying. But I, I think the the overratedness of me. Like imagine if like Dan Z beat me up at a bar. Like that would shock. That would really, <laughs> like my my image and the perception of me would be shaken to the core. I make it. I, they might just be like, it's not that you fought somebody else. We're firing you. It's that you lost to Dan Z in a fight. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Dan Z is a is a is a like one of the producer you know APs around here. Um, I mean, if you lost to Dan Z in a fight, I would that would be a bummer. I don't Dan Z's not small though. I don't know. Ah, he's not small, but he's not he's not as big as you are. He doesn't work out a lot, I don't think. He goes uh, in intervals. I think he's on. He's pretty on and off about it. Because Dan Z, I can always tell when somebody kind of secretly may not like me. Because um, when we did the All Star game in San Diego, <laughs> yeah, I don't think he likes me. And he, you know, he's behind the scenes guy. Um, I never really worked with him on a show or anything. But we were driving to L.A. from San Diego after we did our All Star thing in Canal, and then Vince was driving. This is really inside the Beltway. So this is when Vince was driving or was producing the show, and he was oh, actually wait a minute. Canal drove us, and he got us from San Diego to L.A. in two hours, like during the day, That's and terrifying. it was yeah. it was awful. I mean, Canal he got us there, but uh, we started talking about Russell Wilson because everybody knows that I'm not the biggest Russell Wilson guy. And Dan was so excited to be like, "Do you think you could take Russell Wilson?" I was like, "Probably not." And then he took it to like another level and started just off the back seat. He's like, I bet you he would mop you. I was like, yeah, Dan, probably would. He's like, I think he would absolutely. And he just kept doing <laughs> just it. Kept and I went, going. That's a very fancy thing. Yeah. And I was like, where do you want to go with this? Although sometimes I think guys that post like Russell Wilson boxing footage that runs on a Sunday night football game. Guess who's giving Sunday night football that footage? Russell Wilson's giving that footage to them. And I don't know, man. I, I think a lot of guys that do that were like, hey, check out all my boxing videos. And hell, I even did it once, but it was kind of me making fun of Instagram, which may have actually been me wanting to do it, which is always the backwards theory yeah. there. But yeah, I think if a behind-the-scenes guy that nobody thought was tough just wiped the floor with me, I would um, I have to start wearing bigger shirts and, and uh, smiling more, I guess, yeah, around yeah. the office. <laughs> yeah, you get knocked off your perch. But I, I just can't see that happening, I, with all due respect to Dan Z. <laughs> yeah, because Golik Senior was asked me one time. He's like, "Who do you think would win in a fight?" I was like, well, "Yeah, didn't you wrestle? Like, weren't you all state wrestler?" He's in the Hall go, of Fame, I believe. Yeah, I go. I don't. I don't care how old you are. I'm like, 
diabetes. You know, like I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. We got. Will that be taken the wrong way? Will it make it? Because I'm not certainly making fun no, of that. No. All right. I just, we, we got into this on Will's show because I think we were talking about whether or not which show staff would win in a fight or something. Just and, a just a free for all Civil War style. Yeah, and and you know Nuno, time. Bubba, Will, and I versus mm, like you I know like your show Wingo. Uh, Wingo, and and we ended up talking about. I think we left Gold Junior. Gold Junior was the most terrifying one, and I was sort of downplaying Gold Senior because I'm like, I, you know, I you know I see him around like he's you know, I don't I don't think his knees are as great anymore. Like I don't know how big of a threat he would really be. I would I think I feel like I'd be able to dodge him a lot. And everyone's oh, like, no. oh, you want to fight Mike Gold Senior? I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying that he's not tough or wouldn't kill me if he got his hands on me. I just feel like I could move around a little bit. Yeah, see, the other thing that, like, when people pick me, like, okay, but you're picking, like, that's always the joke I make, like, the hottest baseball historian. Like, in the media world, it's not really like, oh, cool, you know? Like, you, you're picking me against Greeny? All right. Yeah, cool. <laughs> you know? Um, Golik Jr. deserves, but see, the thing is, is he falling into the athlete category where I'm in the clear there, or is, is it not because he didn't play in the pros? I think he's still, I mean, he's an athlete, like, yeah, Let's right. So, okay, but if he were Plus still he in it, like, he works out a ton now. He he's works out slim. a ton. He's yeah. incredibly strong. I've worked out with him a million times because we were at the same gym in West Hartford forever. And trust me, like all those dudes, there's just a different level. Like I just try to, whether it's golf or screwing around with guys and, and guys that played pro sports. And granted, there's always a few that are like, how the hell is this guy a pro athlete? But for the majority, there's like a reason why they are. And it happens early on and it's running through that DNA ladder. And, uh, I just, I think overall going, oh, I could beat up. Like, just, next time you're watching a game, like, how many NBA guys do you think you could beat up? <laughs> Zero, for sure. Right. And they're always, but see, they're not great fighters. And because they're really long, their punches are longer. And because they were always tall, they probably didn't have to get in many fights. Like, I don't know if LeBron would be good in a fight. I can't imagine that anybody's ever tried to fight him. And I don't, I don't think he's like a dude. Like, Jay Crowder's wired differently than LeBron James. So like when Jay Crowder got into Jokic, uh, how about the other this? Night. Like I'm trying to think of like somebody who isn't a fighter as well, but has like the same build as an NBA as an NBA player. Like, like who's a uh, like I'm not Drake's a bad example because Drake would be a terrible fighter, but he posts all sorts of like he's the, he's the guy he would be the guy that would post a ton of boxing videos. I don't know why I just Alba keeps coming to my mind, but he's too old. I think who Idris Alba? No, Idris Alba. I feel like back in the day he'd probably be a good fighter. He's, he looks like a good athlete, but he's an actor, so he probably doesn't get the credit he deserved. Yeah, and then you never know too. Like, you think like, Matt the Damon other day, could fight? who you think Matt Damon could fight? Matty G, sure. From the rough streets of Chucktown, I don't know. Like he may, maybe. I'm gonna guess no. I'm gonna guess that Matt Damon, you know, may have gotten a scrapper here or there. He's the smile on his face tells me he wasn't ever like a tough guy. I bet you Affleck's cracked a couple guys in the head. I could see that. I, more more than, than Matt Damon, yeah. Yeah. See, this this actually makes a little bit more sense, though, because if you're looking at like how guys are, are built, but then you never know. Like Mario Lopez, I've stood next to. I was right next to him in a UFC fight. Yeah, sneaky like, huge. I could see that. No, he's small. Really? He he's looks so really? small. And then he posts a video of him doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and you go, okay, I don't want to deal with that. Is he one of those, like, he's, you know, he works out a ton, but he's, like, slim, strong? Everyone in L.A. is so small. Like, whatever... Whatever size you think of any actor or anyone that's famous that's out in L.A. and doing the L.A. thing, just try to do like a, a thing where you 
decrease their overall body mass by 20%, and you're probably still too high. Yeah, Everybody's you know so small out here. I feel like the, it, Tom Hardy, I feel like, is way smaller. Than oh, he's so team. small. I know. He's, I know he's short, which is a bummer because he's like my – I mean, not that it's a bummer, but like he's just – he isn't like – you know, he's not um, he's not Bane like in real life. <laughs> no, no, no. God, that was loud. Uh, you know who's big? John Hamm met him the other night. Oh, uh, yeah. Big. Not huge, but he's a big guy. Heard, you know, if, <laughs> I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> no, he was great. I said hello. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, you know who, uh, yeah, I'll, get, I'll do more famous stories here. Uh, the other guy who came up to me when I was at the Clippers Warriors thing, uh, this is the first game I've gone to for a Clippers game this year, and Quentin Richardson stopped the courtside seat. And oh, he, former he, Magic, right? Yeah, and he, he dapped me up and said, I bleep with you. And he said that he and uh, Darius Miles, who was also in attendance of the game, uh, he said they're launching a podcast. I said, all right, well, if you want. And I'm like, I'm not doing this to try to get get anything out of it other than to help you guys out. Because, uh, you know, I was a huge Darius guy, especially when he was going to be a St. John's commit. But I, we all knew that wasn't going to happen. So I got really excited about that for a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, Quentin Richardson said he used to love the show. And um, they're launch- so be on the lookout for Q and Darius Miles launching a podcast at some point. I don't know where it's going to be. So, yeah, I think we kind of covered all of this. I'm trying to think of somebody who's a non-athlete at ESPN that I would be afraid of. What about Fowler? He's he's kind of sneaky big, right? Yeah, and he does he does work out and then, you know, he's going to have serious endurance because of the Aspen stuff. And I could see him getting mad. But I would I would try really hard in that fight. <laughs> so <laughs> Cotter, I mean, everybody. Oh, wait a minute. Wait. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. His arms are the size of my torso. <laughs> But I think I'd be able to take him low. I do. And he knows this. He knows this. But he's got – there's some stuff going on upstairs there where it, it might go real bad real quick. Like he'll just snap. Yeah. I can yeah. Snap. yeah. I mean, people thought I was having a hard time at the end in West Hartford. My God. I I had people I didn't know at the gym coming up to me be like, you talk to that guy? I'm like, yeah. Like, is he all right? <laughs> like, yeah, he's just – he's listening to Master of Puppets and it's uh, it's Arms Day again. You know, back off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was a really extended. Uh, I don't know how many people. I think. Look, we always know how it goes. People end up liking that stuff far more than the other stuff. But that's a little gift to uh, to people that have worked at ESPN that'll listen to all that stuff. I'm trying to think of somebody else. I just. I'm trying to think of one more media guy. Fowler's a good pull. And there's somebody we're missing. There's somebody you're going to go. Oh yeah, good one, good one. Mm, Randy Scott. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Sorry, Randy. I know he no, listens a lot. No offense. Mm. Van Pelt's got some size, but he would he would be like, "Hey, dude, I'm just forfeiting. Like, I don't want to do this." Yeah, he's, he's. I mean, he might be last. I think I'd pick him last, and that's not because he. Yeah, he would just go. I have no interest in this. I I don't care. You win. <laughs> he would just be like, I don't I don't want to do this. Matt Levitar, Barry used though. to be a sneaky meathead, but then he slimmed down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, McShay had that. McShay was mm-hmm. was like two twenty. He's kind with, of an athlete, though. I would consider him an athlete. Yeah, we're not going to go that far, though. Sorry, because he was on the scout team after his freshman year, and that's where he learned how to watch film. Because they're like, <laughs> "Hey, you're never going to play. We're doing the zone read now. Drop that right? guy." Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's it's one of those odd the the cosmos come together where it's like you're never going to play. So break down t- tape, and they're like, "This guy's insanely good at this." Oh, there's somebody else. There's somebody else. I was just thinking, Levitard. And Levitard has mentioned that in his younger days, he uh, he's not afraid to 
scrap. And, and I can tell the way he's doing it. He's not doing it to be like, hey, I'm tough. He's like, hey, you guys, I'm just telling you, like, I used to fight. Like, I used to like to fight. So I don't know. I don't know if that's 20s. If it's 20s, it's a little different than doing it in your teens. Um, and he's big. He's a big dude. But not I as big think... as you think, though. Really? Well, you I don't, don't think like, he's big? Well, I think I everybody think he's thinks per... he's fat, and that's oh, not no. true. No, there's some, there's some shots. I don't know if his staff is doing it to him where he looks terrible. I and think then... he doesn't care. I think that's the thing. I think he just is who he is. Yeah, no, that's actually very true. Like, I... You know, there's everybody wants to be the guy that says I don't care, but I think there are times with that kind of stuff where he's like, I don't care. But I've hung out with him, and he's he's not some sloppy guy. It just looks it just looks sloppy on TV sometimes, and I wonder if they just do that to screw with him. Because I think the cool thing about that show is that everybody really likes each other. So, as opposed to your show with Will, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The sneaky part is actually. We defend, we give Will crap, but I think we defend him in house when other people, you know, it's one of those things like we can only make fun of our pledges kind of thing. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. I mean, you do, it's funny how you guys are doing the show now though, where you're, he'll do a segment and then you guys tell him what you didn't like about the segment in the next <laughs> yeah. segment. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause his, his whole thing is like, keep me on my toes, make sure I'm not, cause I don't, did you hear the Shaughnessy interview yesterday? I was at all? in the car. I was yeah. stuck in traffic. I mean, it so was, I caught it was all pretty it. great. But the, the whole thing is like, I understood what Shaughnessy was saying because he was, you know, he was talking about Hall of Fame voting and, um, you know, how he did, he, he didn't really care about most of the off the field things, but then he wouldn't vote for Kurt Schilling because he was a bad guy. And Will kind of caught him in a, in a, you know, it's been a pickle where he was kind of, um, you know, going, you know, contradicting himself. And I, I, I was just like, Will, like you wanted that so badly. You wanted that so badly. You love putting people in a situation where they have to contradict themselves and then say, hmm, look at that. And so I think it's just only fair that we call him out for that because that's what he's trying to do. So, yeah. And he listen, he wants that, so that's fine. Yeah, I kind of got his point. And check out the podcast uh, with Shaughnessy if you want to listen back to what we were talking about, uh, the Will Cain show. But there was – I was listening to the car, and I was like, this it doesn't really – like I was surprised – I was like, man, I don't really feel like what he said was all that inconsistent. Like, I got his point. And Shaughnessy was like, look, I'm just not voting for Schilling. Like, and it was, it, it felt a little bit like, hey, I don't like Schilling either. Yeah, he was like, he's, he's marginal and I don't like him. Bus. What about Ty Cobb? Who knows? <laughs> I wasn't there. Yeah, because the Ty Cobb one is what everyone goes to. And they're like, well, what, you know, what would you do? Well, you know, if I'd been, you know, coming over, if I had caught him in Providence on the road and, you know, was around the hotel, maybe I'd think differently. All right, this was a really long uh, wandering. Yeah. I, I, you know what I know we need to do is we're going to have to look back at the numbers on this one because as of now, what I was told is we have the number one podcast as far as total engagement where it's like from start to finish, people listen. Like we have the highest level engagement from start to finish of any podcast. And this one may <laughs> screw up those numbers. Yeah, this may test that. <laughs> we may be in jeopardy of losing the top spot. <laughs> this could look a little bit like uh, the ice caps. Okay. Subscribe if you're still listening. Please uh, subscribe. Get everyone to subscribe because that's the other way they're going to keep me. All right? So check it out.